Matthew chapter 18 is where we will start uh, our, our morning at. Um, as a way of getting started, I have an announcement on uh, Saturday, November 5th. If you haven't seen this in an email yet, we are throwing a community block party. Um, and so think of the 40th anniversary uh, we did in April, if you're here for that, but a little bit bigger and a little bit better and a lot more outward focused. And so the 40th was kind of a celebration for us, and this is kind of a celebration for everybody else, okay? And so we've got lots of awesome things planned for it. Um, it's going to be from 11 to 2 on Saturday, November 5th. We have all kinds of fun stuff coming in for kids, inflatable uh, slides and bouncy houses and jousting where I'll hurt my spleen and, uh, <laughs> you know, rock wall and little trains coming in. And, and we have um, some free rallies that we'll, we'll have for the uh, adults. We've got some businesses that have already given us some sweet donation packages. Uh, we have uh, all kinds of different things. Elijah Rising and some other uh, nonprofits, East Fort Bend Human Needs, will set up some booths and, and we'll give some exposure to them. We're trying to, right now, finalize with a, a dog adoption center to get some puppies out here. Because who doesn't want to stop and see some puppies, okay? Um, and so we're going to canvas the neighborhood and the businesses around us the two weeks beforehand. Um, it's great this is the season of politics because it teaches us that if you care about something, you'll knock on doors for that something. Okay, and so um, we're going to get the word out to everyone around us uh, at the school. This is part of our larger vision here at First Colony Christian Church. We want to be a deep church in a shallow world, um, and part of that is reaching out to other people. Um, and we have uh, acknowledged that we've not always done the best job of that. We've got Clements High School right over there, and we've not done a great job reaching out to them. And we've got neighbors all around us who, who don't know we're a church or who've never been uh, introduced to um, the, the love that we have here as a faith community. And so um, we're going to do that. We're going to go hard on that. If you uh, feel uncomfortable at the idea of knocking on doors, that's probably a good sign that you're supposed to sign up to go knock on some doors. Okay, it's not my wheelhouse either. Uh, a few weeks ago, though, Cheryl and I went out and we went and met people. So we need volunteers for the day of. There'll be things to do, man a booth, make snow cones, paint faces, make sure no one steals a puppy, things like that, right? <laughs> Um, and then we need volunteers to sign up to help us spread the word, okay? And so we'll do that during the day, we'll do that at night, um, and things like that. And so uh, you can sign up on Sheets Out There. We'll be sending more information your way about that um, as it comes forward. Now, we're continuing in our relationship, uh, in our series on relationships, uh, kingdom relationships. We started last week by talking about love, and, and we determined that in a relationship for one who follows Jesus, love is kind of the center of, of all relationships, that we should keep love alive in every relationship that we have, and that everything else is kind of details. Everything else kind of just builds up to being able to love. And that's true for our topic this morning as we discuss how to handle relationships as a Christian. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming you've never experienced this. I'm currently going to a couple different doctors. They're trying to figure out what's wrong. Um, there's something that happens to me. When somebody like says something mean to me, or they insult me, or they hurt me in some way, um, I I have this like inability to get over it, and I don't know what it's called. I'm assuming again this has never happened to you, right? But I get angry and frustrated, and I build up like this resentment, and and I have this grudge that just builds and builds and builds and builds. And as Christians, Jesus talks about this all the time. This this word that starts with F, forgiveness. And it's an important part of any relationship. If you've been in a relationship, I'm assuming you are, you're human, correct? Hopefully, everybody. 
Did we scan you coming in? You'll know that people make mistakes. There's always going to be conflict. Um, as a pastor, I will always disappoint you. Good news. Right? No relationship can exist without being built on trust and forgiveness. People are going to make mistakes, and you've got to be able to forgive them. But it's hard. It's a hard thing to forgive somebody. Someone was in my office this week. Um, uh, they had someone who had hurt them and were, 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 were just crying and going over that and saying, I want to forgive. I know I'm supposed to forgive, but I don't know how. I have so much anger and so much resentment. I don't know how to forgive this person to, to reconcile that relationship. I can't even imagine a scenario in which that would occur. And so let's look at the teachings of Jesus when it comes to forgiveness. He talks about it a lot throughout the Gospels, um, and there's a lot, I think, for us to learn. So we'll be in Matthew 18, um, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, so Peter's our boy, very brash, um, likes to impress Jesus. Jesus has just talked about forgiving your brother and how to do that. So if someone offends you, go to them one-on-one. Don't write a blog about it, okay? Do a news, news conference. Um, and then Peter comes up and unprovoked, right? He walks into this. This is all Peter. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, I read this with the connotation of Peter trying to impress Jesus, right? He's like, two times, that seems fair enough, right? Three-strike rule. Um, four times, let's just do seven, round number. Okay, I'm going to impress Jesus. Jesus, okay, we're talking about this forgiveness thing. How many times should I forget the same fool keeps coming at me? Like seven, right? And Jesus responds, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And you can see, I mean, you can just hear Peter's little ego, right, crumbling. 77 times. Now, in the symbolic world of the first century um, Jewish community, seven is a very um, symbolic number. It represents wholeness and fullness. The world was created in 70 days. And so 77 is, is a way of Jesus responding and saying, you should forgive an unlimited amount of times. There should be no end to your forgiveness for someone who sins against you. And so he tells a parable. He he gives him a story so that Peter's small little mind can grasp this. He says in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents is a lot of wealth. If you were trying to translate that into uh, our modern day scenario, you're looking at like millions or billions of dollars. It's more than most people can hope to make in a lifetime, more than most people can hope to make in 20, 30, 40 lifetimes. This is an unpayable debt. This is a completely unpayable debt. And since he could not pay, verse 25, his master ordered him, to be sold with his wife and with his children and all that he had and for payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He he won't. He's not going to be able to. But in verse 27, out of pity for him, out of empathy, out of love, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of that debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, not a whole lot of money, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. Uh, so Stephen, F- uh, the, who's that WWE wrestler? Stephen, 
Steve, uh, Steve Austin, is that it? Yeah, he chokeholds him, okay, and says, give me all that you owe me. There's a couple stories in scripture where someone makes such an extreme reversal um, that you're sitting there and you're like, what just happened? Why did you do that? This is obviously a made-up story, right? This didn't happen. Jesus just given an example. But I think of the Israelites in Exodus. Um, they have just been led out of Egypt as slaves. Um, God has defeated the most powerful army that has ever been known to man at the time. He has put a whole ocean, put a bridge through there, piled the waters up, and they've walked through. And then just moments later, they get bored and tired and restless, and they build this golden calf and say, thank you, calf, you have led us out of Egypt. And you're like, oh no, how could you be so foolish? I mean, how could you make such a reversal, such a colossal mistake? It, it looks like that with this guy, right? We instantly feel this kind of hatred towards him. We I mean, we feel this kind of visceral gut reaction, right? He's got this huge debt paid off, and then he goes out, and a moment later has someone in a sleeper hold going, give me that five bucks. And everything in us wants to slap this guy. Give me this, give me this bucks, 100 denarii. So his fellow servant fell down, and he pleaded with him. Have patience with me, I'll pay you. Okay, now he's surely going to respond the way he's supposed to. But in verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw that this had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Peter walked into, I think, much more than he was asking for. Peter starts this question, how many times should I forgive my brother, should I forgive someone who comes and hurts me, does something wrong to me? He starts it assuming that he is the person who's going to be offering forgiveness. Assuming he's the person in power or authority. And Jesus' reply, I think primarily, tells Peter that he needs to reverse the roles here. He doesn't come to his brother who's offended him as someone who offers forgiveness He comes to him as someone who's been forgiven. His identity is is mistaken in his approach to this question. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother? As if he was the one offering forgiveness on this kind of stable. But Jesus says, no, no. First of all, you need to realize before you ever offer forgiveness, your entire identity is wrapped up in that million dollars that you just got let off the hook for. The, the therapists have uh, worked hard on, on how to offer forgiveness. If you've ever been hurt by someone and you, you harbor this kind of anger and resentment and bitterness towards them, you'll know it, it can eat away at somebody. I mean, it can really do a lot of damage um, to, to uh, people uh, around you, to um, yourself, your, your inner life. And, and so um, a, a therapist named Robert um, Enright 
came up with what he calls a practical model of offering forgiveness. And so there's four, um, four phases here. And it, it's, it's fairly good, actually, um, except for one point. Okay, so there's 20 steps for this therapist to offer someone forgiveness, which is great, right? Who doesn't want 20 steps for something? Um, and so he, he breaks it down into four phases, though. He says, okay, if someone, if a client walks into my office and they have like a father who, who was just a miserable human being towards them, here's how we're going to work towards letting them forgive that person and, and have a more free life. He says, phase one, the client needs to work on uncovering their anger. They need to work on identifying it. They need to name the person or people who hurt them. They need to name the actions that hurt them. They need to name and describe the emotions of feelings that resulted because of those actions. They can't stop hiding them or denying them. They need to give expression to them. And I think this is true. I agree with him here. You can't forgive something that you have never identified as wrong. I was taught... uh, by my Hebrew professor in, in undergrad, um, in, in the course of my undergraduate work, um, he was a kind of eccentric guy, um, one of you know my kind of heroes in the faith, and and he he taught us that you should never brush off someone's apology. So if someone comes to you and says, "I'm sorry for not doing what you've asked me to do. I didn't come through for you. I'm sorry for that." Never say it's okay. Because what you've just done is you've just taken away their ability to be forgiven. Either it doesn't deserve an apology, or you should say, I forgive you. Because otherwise you trivialized it, right? So often we do this because we want to deny or we want to hide. We want to just pretend like there's no problems. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. No, you should worry about it. It was wrong. We have to name this, identify it. And then reject it. I'm sorry. In the same sense, you know, he would, you'd apologize to him. He was a very eccentric guy. And he'd be like, you're already forgiven. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Like, yeah, this is still kind of awkward, though, because I didn't turn in my paper. And does that mean I get a zero or what's happening? He would always go back right to your identity. I'm sorry about this. I've got good news. You're sorry about it, but you've, you've already been forgiven. It's a great world that you live in. You have to identify, you have to, to, to name, you have to be able to, to recognize what hurts you. And then phase two, he says, once you've done that, then you can, this all-important decision, decide to forgive. Everyone doesn't have to forgive people. You can choose to harbor bitterness and a grudge. You have to come to a point where you say, I want to forgive this person. I want to move on in my life. And he says there's three components to this. You've got to turn away from the past look towards the future, choose a new way to live and to think and to do things. Phase three, he says, is you've got to work to understand. And so this is where you start to, to expand your perspective, okay? The hurt person tries to gain compassion for the offender. No matter how bad the offense was, no matter how, how awful or traumatic their experience was, they try to build what we talked about last week, empathy. Put yourself in, in their shoes a little bit. It doesn't mean you're condoning that doesn't mean that their behavior was okay. We've already named it and identified it. So that was bad, that was wrong, that was evil. But maybe they were hurt when they were a kid. People don't usually go out and hurt people just because. Hurt people hurt people, right? 
Now, again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it's okay for people to hurt people. It just means that usually someone who hits a child was hit when they were a child. It doesn't mean it's okay, but it means there's some kind of cycle happening, right? There's, there's some kind of hurt and abuse. There's, there's some understanding that needs to take place here. And in phase three, you, you hopefully work yourself up to the, the place where you can even offer your offender a gift, whether that's the gift of forgiveness or whether it's some compassionate act. You've seen, I think, big examples of this in the news sometimes. When someone gets shot or killed or murdered, right? And, and, and someone comes on TV and says, I forgive that person. Or someone testifies in their, on their behalf and says, I don't want them to receive the death penalty. You see, that's, that's phase three right there. They're putting themselves in their shoes. They're feeling empathy for that person. Phase four is where you discover and nurture more positive emotions from that hurt. So you find some meaning in your suffering. You see how it grew you. You see what strengths it's given you that you wouldn't have had otherwise and, and, and kind of apply that to a purpose in your life um, and find companions who can, can work with you there. Now, here's what's wrong with these four phases. I think phase one, three, and four are great. And I do think this is kind of the process of wrestling with forgiveness. The problem, I think, is with phase two here where, where Robert, um, he says, you've got to come to a point where you make a decision to forgive because I can very, very well identify people and actions and feelings that hurt me. I'm really good at it. I'm like an expert. <laughs> like I could get really descriptive and come up with like a very interesting chain of words and adverbs and adjectives. But, but when it gets to that point to forgive, I'm like, no, I'd rather get revenge. I'm going to start like a 12-year plan. Which, by the way, how do you ever know when you've had enough revenge? I mean, you slash their tires, right? You stalk them. You, 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 you get them fired from their job. You do all these awful and awful and awful, awful things to them, trying to, to pay them back what, what they deserve, what, what you owe them. When do you ever do enough evil things and you go, whoa, I feel the peace of God. <laughs> A second ago, I was cold and filled with hatred and bitterness. And now it's like butterflies are breezing around my spring heart. That's not how it works, right? Revenge always escalates. It always inflates. Um, If you ever need a handbook to go into like a family reunion, right, like a guideline, this person to this person to this person to this person to this person, generations back, that's, that's what revenge does, right? It's like relational pong. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and watch it throughout history. It can relationally pong between countries over generation, over generation, over generation, over generation. And the people pressing the button to send the bomb don't know why. Never identified it. I want revenge. And this is where I think being a Christian and Jesus gives us the ability to forgive in, in a, a way that we would never have had otherwise. We talked about it with love, right? We, we can't love other people. If love is based on our own strength, our own willpower, it's, it's going to run out. It's going to be faulty. We don't have the endurance to love all people at all times. 
But if we let God's love flow in us and fill us up so much that it overflows onto the people around us, we might be able to, to do that, to, to fulfill some of Jesus' commandments. It's the same, I think, with forgiveness. To the extent that you understand that you have been forgiven, that you owed more than you could ever pay, and yet, God the Father, through the work of the Son, and the Spirit looks at you and says, you are my child. I forgive you. To the extent that you realize and appreciate that forgiveness, I think you'll be able to offer that forgiveness to other people. It's only equal at the foot of the cross. There's no one ever gets to like lean on the cross, right? I'm glad you came. <laughs> Everyone, everyone, when they come to the cross, comes saying, I couldn't do it. I couldn't save myself. I'm in the hole. It was only God's grace. It was only God's love. It was undeserved forgiveness that accepts me. Think of the, the story of the prodigal son, which I love so much. The father loves his, his sons. One of them runs off and, and eventually he comes running back and, and, and the son runs and goes and grabs the, the, the son, or the father comes and, and grabs the son. And, and what the son realizes, the one who had gone away, is that the father had always loved him. He comes back thinking he's going to be a servant, right? And he's got this whole like speech prepared. The father won't even entertain it. And he had to recognize, he had to realize who the father actually was. He didn't have to ask for forgiveness. He didn't have to be convinced to forgive his son. He just had to turn around. His son was there with, with open arms. His father was there with open arms. Thus it is with, with Christians. To forgive others, I think we, we have to know what the Father has done through, through Jesus. We have to know that God looks down on us because of Jesus' work on the cross, our union with him through the Spirit. He looks down on us with nothing but love, with unending forgiveness. That there's nothing we can do to make God look away from us or to flinch in disgust. We're perfectly accepted, perfectly forgiven. And like Jesus says, the person who has been forgiven little loves little. The person who's been forgiven a lot loves a lot. It's hard for me to understand someone really believing that they've been forgiven of something that they cannot pay and then being able to withhold that from people around them. Now, I can understand it being difficult. I can understand it being hard. I can understand it being a process. But I think to the extent that you realize how forgiven you are, it's the extent that you'll start to see other people in that light. We focus our gaze on, on Jesus, and we recognize, we start to determine that as he looks down at us, he looks at us with the face of forgiveness. Hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as we, we recognize that he has forgiven us, we also slowly start to recognize his gaze is not just on me. His gaze of forgiveness is also on the person next to me and the person on this side, and the people all around me. 
And over time, as I gaze more and more and more on that face, looking down, offering forgiveness, I also start to see the people on my right and the left and all around me through his gaze. Through his gaze of forgiveness. It's not easy. It takes a long time. But this, I think, is the key to forgiveness. To understand that, that we're not the ones in position to forgive until we understand that we're the ones who have been forgiven. Only the forgiven can forgive. And you can't forgive unless you realize how much you've been forgiven. If you think you've just been forgiven a little bit, you'll be able to forgive just a little bit. But if you realize that you were lost and dead, and you did nothing to deserve God's love, and yet he pours it out on you indiscriminately, then it's hard to look at someone else and say, you have no hope. What you did was, was worth me exacting revenge. This is why Jesus, I think, so often links up forgiveness. He'll, he'll say, um, again, like this, uh, if you don't forgive your brother, my father is going to do these things to you. Later he'll say, earlier in Matthew and in Luke, um, he'll say, if, if you don't forgive people, neither will my father forgive you. They seem to be linked up. I don't think this is like a, a legal transaction. I think this is just like a, a, a natural truth, right? They, they're one and the same. If you're not living in forgiveness with other people, it's hard for you to be living in forgiveness with the Father. It's not that he's not willing to forgive you. It's that you're not looking at that gaze, right? How will you ever receive the forgiveness of the Father if everyone around you owes you debts? If everyone around you is, is liable to your punishment, to your judgment, to your revenge. So how can we build our forgiveness muscles for phase two here? I think we need to recognize the pain that someone has caused us. You can't, you can't be mad at the church. Hurt is personal. Pain is personal. Revenge is personal. And, and sometimes if we genericize it, um, if, if, if we um, generalize it, like I'm hurt by the church, we get paralyzed. You can't forgive the church. You're not hurt by the church. You're hurt by that pastor who did that thing and it made you feel this way. A business can't hurt you. You're hurt by that boss who did this thing and it made you feel this way. Once we name that, how then can we soak in God's forgiveness and, and, and maybe increase our ability to forgive other people so we can feel empathy for them, show love to them, and then nurture these more positive emotions and, and grow as a, a human being? Three things, three ways I think that we might be able to do this. The first is confession. Um, throughout history, Christians have very traditionally practiced confession to one another um, and and. Um, with the Protestant Reformation, um, there's a big emphasis that we don't need a priest, right, to intercede between us and God except for um, the priest Jesus. Um, so we don't need another man that we have to confess our sins to. But we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. Because there are scriptures that tell us to confess to one another, and there's real power in confessing to other people, to real human beings around you. Um, first of all, it allows you to understand that other people are not perfect. Everyone has a story. 
right? It's easy sometimes to put people on a pedestal and think that, that their life is perfect and, and they don't have the same struggles that you have. And then all of a sudden you might find out, oh, wow, they're, they're dealing with this. And you build empathy for them. When you can confess your own sins, when you can confess your own mistakes, there's this freedom to it. If you've ever attempted it, if you've ever practiced it, I mean, there's this odd freedom where it seems like it no longer controls you the way it used to, if you, if you say it out loud. And the truth about forgiveness um, in confession is confession is never about what you bring to the table. Confession's always about what you get out of it. When you go to confess, like a Roman Catholic, when they go into to the, the little confession booth to confess, they know what the final word is going to be. You're forgiven. Now this can lead to maybe like some cheap grace, the thing we can just do whatever we want and then we'll be forgiven. But theologically, this is truth. And I think the only truth that makes confession possible. We come to God and each other confessing because we already know the word. We've already seen the answer on the cross. You are forgiven. It's our forgiveness that creates the space for us to feel safe to confess to ourselves and to one another. Confession, I think, is, is an important way that we can um, practice um, understanding our own need for forgiveness and then being able to forgive other people around us. Um, with that, I think small groups are important. We've got our community groups coming up. We want a Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Um, starting this Friday, if you want to join one of those, you can talk to me or, or one of our elders, and we'll get you plugged in. Shoot us an email, fill out a card. Um, small groups actually, like as an organizational thing, come out of the Wesleyan tradition, so Methodist churches, um, a ways back. And, and they would structurally have five questions they'd start their small group meeting with. And so check this out. Imagine being in a room of people and reading these questions to one another, okay? Ready? I want you to think about what your answers would be. And then I'm going to randomly call on some people to share. (laughs) What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Jake. (laughs) (laughs) What temptations have you been met with? How were you delivered? If you were delivered... What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? We can help you. What are you confused about? And then this is my favorite. What is it from last week that you want to keep secret? And then here's the, the key for the, the, the Wesleyan group as they started this, this movement. The leader always goes first. He asks these, these five questions Everyone's going to go and they're going to share. And he starts, boom, this is it. It's an example and it's a practice. In a sense, it's almost this playground where, where you can learn in a safe place how to forgive and, and receive forgiveness so that you might go out into the world where it's a little less clean and safe, it's a little less structured, and yet be able to, to extend forgiveness to people. It's a lot like the, the 12-step communities, Alcoholics Anonymous, things like that. The difference is in, in, in the 12-step communities, they are depending on a higher power, is what, what they would term it. 
So it's this generic God-like substance, person, deity. Um, and, and for Christians, it's a very specific God that they're depending upon, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think this makes all the difference, right? Because if it's, if it's confession with the help of a higher power that's undefined, then naturally I think we are so used to projecting a fear onto that higher power. It's going to come and judge us. It's going to come and punish us. What the story of Christianity is that the judge has shown up and taken our punishment. It's the weirdest courtroom scene that's ever happened. The judge who's about to punish us gets up out of the seat and goes and argues in our defense. And so we can confess in small groups together because we have no fear about what's coming our way. Judgment. I mean, think about this. Why are people so afraid to talk about judgment and, and, and punishment, and final judgment? It's because they, they don't properly understand who it is who's judging. Yeah, if it's this cold, faraway, distant, mean deity, we should be pretty scared. But if the one who's coming to judge us is the one who gave his life so that he might forgive us, is the one who stands and argues in our defense, then that might change how we feel about this whole process. Confession, small groups, the last one we'll end with um, is worship. We come to worship um, on a, a weekly basis, sometimes more, sometimes a little less. And often we sometimes think of it as kind of self-centered. Um, we come to get our batteries charged. We come to refresh, refuel. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Um, but if you think about it, when you come to worship, it's actually one of the most selfless things you do during the week. You're coming to worship, and you're coming to, to really to boast in God, right? Say, Jesus has won. God has forgiven me. My hope and, and everything that I have is found in God and his love and in his um, identity declaration over me. Um, in church at worship, you're coming and you are exposing yourself. You're telling anyone who can walk in this door, I can't save myself. I've sinned. I'm lost. I mean, you guys made a big mistake today. The whole world knows it now. And as you do that, as you boast in God, you start to notice, hey, there's someone else next to me. And they can't save themselves. There's someone else over there. And they needed Jesus' forgiveness just as much as I did. And again, I think these, these forgiveness muscles, muscles start to, to flex and start to grow. At worship, we were reminded that um, our primary identity is, is those who have been forgiven and that once we can live and rest and act out of that identity, um, I think we'll find over time that we'll be able to forgive more and more in ways that perhaps we never would have imagined. And so in a moment, we'll come to the table. The table is, is such a great opportunity to come and to, again, bask in God's love for us, hear his word about our sins. You are forgiven. It's been dealt with. It's been paid. I've won a battle for you. And at the table, it's a good chance, too, to look around and see that there's other people here with you. They were forgiven, too. And that person who hurts you, 
that resentment that you have, that bitterness that controls your, your inner life, that maybe that person too is welcome at the table. And, and maybe you can view them through the same pair of lenses that Jesus views them. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your um, love for us. We thank you for uh, the fact that we're not on our own to um, walk in relationships as Christians, that, that we don't depend on our own will or strength, um, that as we love people, we love people with your love, and as we forgive people, we forgive people with your forgiveness, Father. Um, I pray that you would enable us um, to really dig into our identity as people who have been forgiven, as people who have been given a gift, and then be able to look at those around us and freely offer that gift the same way it was freely offered to us. We might find that that when we forgive people, the one being freed is not them, it's us. We might have more life, that we might know you more, know your forgiveness more. And ultimately, Father, that we might look more like Christ and thus be able to enjoy our relationship as your son or daughter. Be with us, bless us, send your spirit to keep us sensitive to your, your voice and your will. It's in the name of your son that we pray all these things. Amen.